I've been a member here. I'm not a minister. If you're visiting, I'm not a minister. Um, but I'm a member, and I've been a member here since 1994. I uh, grew up in North Orange County and actually went to Cal State Fullerton. Who, has Cal, who, who here is Cal State? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Ramon Diaz is here. Man, I love this guy. This has been a brother. I, I love you. I'm so glad you're here. It's exciting. Um, but I graduated from Cal State in the early 60s. I'm a little older. No, I graduated in the, nine, the late 90s. Okay, I just look old. Um, I'm married. been married for 19 years, almost 20. And uh, I have two dogs. I have a male pit bull that's about 60 pounds and a micro pit bull. Have you ever seen those? That's a female. Um, she's great. Her name's Dottie. Call her little Dottie. Um, so most of you guys are like, okay, that's great, Chris. We just want to hear about Gina. I wanted to give you an update about Gina. Most of you know that she's been battling cancer for over a year now. Okay, had surgery, went through all her chemo, just finished her infusions, and she has another surgery coming up this next week. This week? No, next week. Okay, so if you could pray for her, that'd be fantastic. Uh, some of you got a chance, I'm throwing out prayer requests right now. Some of you got a chance to meet my mom. Uh, my dad died last year, and my mom was coming to church, and uh, some of you, I was so grateful, invested in talking to her in relationships. Um, and she got rushed to the ER, uh, twice this past week. She has some heart issues. So if you can remember to pray for her uh, and Gina, my wife, that would be fantastic. We'd really appreciate that. Um, okay, so somehow Marcel said, hey, you can come back up and speak again. Uh, it was amazing, Nick. Uh, so last, the first time I spoke about Goliath, was anybody here when we talked about Goliath? And how Goliath's name was really the exposer and what he did was he exposed God's people and prevented them, their fear, whatever was in their heart, they would wake up and they'd pray and they'd go to battle and there's Goliath and he would expose who they were because they never got to the real battle. That was already won, that God had already won for them because Goliath stood in the way and they just couldn't get through it. And then we talked about the next time about Noah and how Noah was a man after God's heart. He followed God. He built this ark. Everyone thought he was crazy. He's insane. What are you doing following this God? It's not going to rain. Sure enough, it rains. Never hears from God. All these people die. All his friends die. There's eight in all that are saved. He's on this boat. It's dark. It's 40 days, 40 nights, and nothing from God. And he feels alone. And then suddenly the water ceases. He lands the first thing he does is he plants a crop and he becomes kind of a drunkard. And he deals with the stress, you want to call it PTSD, whatever you want to call it, of what he went through feeling like God didn't care by alcohol. Messes up his kids for a bit and uh, it was a mess. The crazy part is, is in those stories, especially Noah, the apex of this story, the middle of these bookends is the line, but God remembered Noah. And there's a lot of times that we feel alone and we forget that God remembers us, okay? So let's jump into this. Now, crazy enough, you see these two, you're like, what does this have to do with what you're talking about? Now, these were two news articles that came around that I saw this past week. Uh, one on the left, did you guys see the video of the whale that emerged and swallowed the two women kayakers? They're kayaking, this guy's paddleboarding, all these people, this whale comes up and swallows them. The kayak gets kicked out and they go under. And then the whale spits them out. 
You can look online, you can watch the video. There's a lot of different views of the video. It's unbelievable. Now, I'm not going to bring up Jonah. Earth's water is officially older than the sun. Did you guys see that headlines? Scientists said, you know what, in fact, and look at these articles, Earth's water is older than the entire solar system. Has anyone ever read Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2? I'm not going to, I'm not a, uh, I don't deal in uh, uh, the, the Earth, I'm not a scientist, uh, I don't deal in astrology, any of that. I'm not trying to insinuate anything. I'm just saying the knowledge that we keep coming to, sometimes it's right there in front of us that we're reading. And there's a lot to that, poetry, prose, you know, how God and relationship with man. But it is pretty amazing that scientists now say the water, if you can go back to Genesis 1, read verses 1 and 2, you see what it says about the earth was formless being just a deep sea. And that's all that existed as a spirit of the earth. Pretty interesting. Okay. This thing was on red. All right. I like to walk around, too. Okay. I'm Italian. I use my hands. I walk around. I sweat olive oil. <laughs> you, you guys might get hit in the front. It's just going to come off of me. Okay. So uh, let's talk about Solomon. So today I want to talk about Solomon. Let me see if I can keep up with my stuff here. Okay. King Solomon. Oh, how do we go back? Push the red one. Point here. Can you manually go back? Good. Thank you. Okay, so we want to talk about... We want to talk about Solomon. <laughs> Maybe we don't want to talk about Solomon. All right. So uh, we're going to stick with the Old Testament, and I want to look at Solomon. I want to talk about wisdom, and I want to talk about our lives. Um, you know, King Solomon uh, was the last king of the United Israel, so to say, at its height. Who were the three kings of Israel as a united nation? Who, who started as the first king? Saul. And then it went to who? David. And then it went to his son, Solomon. David ruled about 40 years. Solomon ruled about 40 years. So under King Solomon, it's the height of Israel. They have the most land or the wealthiest. Everybody has a home and a garden, actually, it says. Okay. Uh, Solomon comes and he finishes or he builds the temple that David said he wanted to build. And he's the architect of this temple. Uh, it's a time when things seem so right. It was a realization of the promise of Abraham to Abraham, right? That his, his seeds would become like nations. And there'd be so many of them. And it's building, it's building, it's under David. And he's a man after God's own heart. And here's his son, Solomon. And he's the architect. He builds this thing. And it's so right. And then it just starts to become a disaster and decline. The kingdom splits in two with his own son, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Uh, the loss of the United Kingdom was the end of Solomon's legacy that resulted in Nebuchadnezzar tearing down the temple and it being destroyed. And so how in the world you have this nation, you go from this height where God says, your kingdom's going to endure forever. I'm going to be with you. You're going to do these great things. And then it splits. Amazingly enough, Israel was only a powerful united nation for about 80 years. And if you think between David and Solomon, what four books of the Bible do we have? What did they write? 
David and Solomon. What do we got? Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes, right? A bunch of Proverbs. Um, they were the glory days. There was peace and there was prosperity. Solomon builds this thing. He opens up this temple and he invites the whole world. And he says, hey, come worship God. Our God, the true God, the one. Look at what he has given us. And these people, and he opens up, it's like a global unity tour here to come and worship God. But then it all falls apart within a generation. And it falls fast. Jeroboam, who was a good worker, an official that was under Solomon, he actually comes and he accuses his son of, hey, you've left God. You're not following God anymore. You're not sticking to what we're supposed to do. And rightly so. But he goes, I'm going to go elsewhere. I'm going to go out elsewhere and find a place and to the hills, to the desert with our tents. And he goes out there and he ends up slowly drifting away himself to the point where he raises these golden calves and he tells his people, hey, actually, these are the things, these are the idols that brought you out of Egypt. And they worship these golden calves, right? Uh, Rehoboam, um, he stays and he has Jerusalem and he has two tribes. Jeroboam has 10 tribes. The rest of uh, kings and Samuel is all these prophets that keep coming, trying to bring people back to God. Remember who I am. Remember what I told you to do. Remember the height from which you had fallen. And time and time again, the people reject him. The kings reject him and they do their own thing. And every so often a good one comes in and they last a little bit and then they're out too. And so this brief reign of David and Solomon with some highlights, some, some good highlights, some bad parts, ends. And really, it's the political demise of Israel, the United Nation of Israel. Now, they controlled all the trade routes. I mean, Solomon, I'm going to show you a list. Let's see if I can get through here. Like, oh, by the way, I was looking up Solomon and David, and I don't think the one on the right was King Saul. I don't think they had guns and cars, but this is what comes up if you look up King Solomon. Yeah, this, those are old school posters, right? I'm trying to go forward. Okay, so uh, you see here is the kingdom, how big it was. I was supposed to already get to this. I'm just not clicking. I'm talking. Uh, Jeroboam goes up north, 10 tribes. Rehoboam stays down south in Jerusalem with two tribes. And it just falls apart, divided kingdom. Okay, and it goes from the height all the way down. And I want to show you because you guys know the story of Solomon. So I don't want to save this for later. I want to look through these. You can read through these. These are some part of the accomplishments or the things that Solomon gained. He built, he made, that God gave him. And I got another page. Thank you. I don't think I'm doing this right. I mean, imagine... He had kings, he had governors, he had all these people coming, giving gifts, large amounts of gold. He had a fleet of trading ships that would go out and get gold and animals and you name it. He had slaves galore that worked for him that built most of this stuff. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, right? He was considered the wisest man that ever lived. He had Egyptian chariots, Egyptian horses, 700 wives. That's exhausting. I'm just going to say. That's not. I'm just going to say. 300 concubines. 
It was limitless what he had. God had given him everything. You know, you might be thinking, okay, so we have a nation. Uh, I go forward one more. You guys remember the Tootsie Pop Al? How many looks for a Tootsie Pop? Three, and then he bites it. Okay, so you might be thinking, okay, so we have the height of its nation. Um, there's turmoil within the nation, and it, as big as it gets and as glorious as it gets, it then falls. And you think, are you talking about the United States right now? No. Some of you are thinking that, but no. This is not a political uh, thing. Not at all. You go, well, you must be talking about Christianity in general. From the height to the downfall. Well, possibly. But if you're sitting in this room and you've been here a while, you say, I think you're talking about our church. Hmm. I look out in the audience and I see people have been here 30 years, 25 years, 20 years. Some less, all the way down to who's our newest, maybe a week, a month, which is incredible. But you say, maybe this is a story. And then you go, you know what? No, I know it always has to be personal with me and God because the person to my right, I love them, but it's about me and God. Maybe this is a story of my life as a Christian. From the height to destruction. Okay? So I want to look at this, and I want to uh, examine Solomon. So let's talk a little bit about Solomon. Uh, David dies, and in 1 Kings 2, he puts his son in charge. Now, they think Solomon, as a child, was about 12 years old at this time. Imagine being 12 years old and taking this on. Now, for all of us, 15, let's say 15. Nobody knows the real age. Let's go 15. Imagine the difference between a 15-year-old now and a 15-year-old back then with surviving in life, right? They had some different skills than we have now, okay? But let's say 12, 15 years old. And he has this dream. We got the L. He has this dream, and let's pick up and uh, open your Bibles, and we're going to pick up in 1 Kings 3. And as you're looking at, I'm going to read 1 Kings 2. It says, when the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son, about 12. I'm about to go the way of the earth, he said. Be strong and act like a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. And so we go, okay, so and we're going to read Kings in a second. But David ends up having this dream. We all know this. And he says, I want wisdom. I need to figure out at 12 years old, how do I rule these people? How do I give justice? And God says, okay, I'll give you that. And I'm going to give you a bunch of other gifts, right? And you think about us with Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, if you leave homes for me, if you leave your life for me, you will not fail to receive 100 times. Homes, brothers, sisters. A similar promise, would you say? 100 times what you have. And so we can identify a little bit with Solomon, right, as God's talking to him. And so Solomon wants wisdom and to apply justice, and God gives this to him. Except we know something Solomon didn't. We know that in his lifetime, in just one generation, it would be ripped in half, cut in two. Northern Israel and southern Judah. So doesn't that take away a little bit from the story? Like I'm reading this and I'm thinking, 
okay, God gives them all this wisdom and he gives them everything under the sun. You saw the list. And yet he knows that it's going to be ripped in two. Like this isn't going to last. It's like you're going to go on a trip to Europe and they go, hey, I know you got coach because that's all you can afford, right? Not all of us. But I'm going to throw you in first class. But they already had a briefing that the plane was going to go down halfway there. Or the Titanic. Hey, you're on the Titanic? Great, we're going to give you the, the statesman room, whatever that is. I'm just making that up. I don't even know. Right? It's the nicest room on the boat with the captain. But you know it's going to hit an iceberg and it's going to go down. I mean, is this, is this a charade or a tease with God? From God? Let me give you all this wisdom and I'm going to just tear it up in your lifetime. Hey, uh, become a disciple, become a Christian. Love God. But by the time you die, your heart's going to die. Your kids won't follow. Do you see the comparison? Okay. I mean, who really cares about being smart? If you can be smart and you can be a botanist and you can build reservoirs and you construct giant structures, you can tell the Queen of Sheba everything she wants to know, but at the end of your life it's destroyed, it's meaningless, and no one remembers or cares, and you, your children don't care, nobody cares after them. I mean, what's the point? Now, does God provide counsel and, and uh, advice? I mean, does God go, hey, let me counsel you on your career. You should choose advice on investments or political strategies. Well, maybe if you can apply some wisdom to that, what we're going to talk about. But no, God says, hey, you, here's what I supply, the word of life, the truth, the firm foundation we just sang about. Now, those other things, if you want to learn, go take a, law, a, a course on law or political science, right? If you have a leak in your house, you need to repipe. You go to the Bible, you might build an ark, right? No, go learn how to pipe, right? Be an electrician. Go learn something and then apply it. Computers for dummies for me because I'm terrible with technology, right? But God says, don't necessarily come to me with that. I give the word of life like the wise owl. But God does warn Solomon. He says, look, you're going to have to follow me because if you don't, it doesn't go well for you. Obey my commands like your father did. And Solomon says, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And he gives him this wisdom, okay? So we go, okay, you get wisdom, you get what you pray for, you ask for the right thing, your heart's in it, and we come back to this game, this charade. It's all pulled out. For, it's all no good. The rug's pulled out from underneath you. You think of John 10.10. What does that say? Life to the what? I'm going to give you a hundred times. And I'm going to give you life to the full. Well, my life doesn't seem so full. It's full of things, but not full of the things that I thought that I was going to get or want or need or that God was going to supply. I have a lot of hardships. I have some challenges with people. I have some challenges within my family. I have some challenges with relationships within the church. My boss doesn't treat me the best. I got bills, rents due. I lost my job. School is tough. My teacher was not fair. Man, there's a lot of pressure at work to perform. I don't have the hours to put into God because I have to perform at work. You don't understand if I don't put in 60, 70, 80 hours, I don't feed my family. 
free life to the full. And so Solomon, imagine a boy, he's wholehearted and he says, God, I just give me the guidance. Let me administer justice in accordance to your law. And God says, hey, I'll give you that. But where exactly does this occur? Let's read. 1 Kings 3. Solomon asked for wisdom. Verse 1. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple for the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Verse 4. 1 Kings 3, 4. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father, David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place with my father, David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth or yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for the discernment and administering justice, I will do whatever you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, Solomon, so that there you will never have been, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David the father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. Okay. So Solomon... He goes, God, I need help. First, he marries the daughter of Pharaoh. Really, he married Pharaoh, right? Back then, it was a political alliance. Egypt was powerful. Pharaoh was powerful. I need to marry into Pharaoh. And in the course of it, he falls in love with Pharaoh's wife. Really does. But he says, God, I need wisdom to serve these people. And he asks for that. God's impressed. He says, yep. In a matter of fact, I'm going to give you everything else. He wakes, he's elated, he makes a huge sacrifice to God, he celebrates in Jerusalem, and he holds a three-day great feast for all these people. And then we're going to get into the next part, which is a little strange, when suddenly these two women show up, okay? Um, you hear them as being, uh, one says prostitutes, one says harlots. That's an old school word, I guess, right? Harlots. A wise ruling. Let's read on verse 16. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, pardon me, my lord. This woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was living with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman had a baby too. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. Okay, real quick. Now, I'm, I'm a male, okay? I know women have menstrual cycles that can get onto the same cycle, right? You work together, live together. Birthing cycles, has any woman in here ever has seen that? 
five women pregnant in this fellowship, suddenly you give birth all at the same time. So we have two women living in the same house who suddenly get pregnant and give birth basically at the same time. Pretty, pretty amazing. Pretty amazing story, right? Okay, so let's continue on. Kind of weird. During the night, verse 19. During the night, this woman's son died because she laid on him. She got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while, I, while your servant was asleep. She put him on her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that he wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son. The dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours. The living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. The king said, this one says my son is alive. The other said he's dead. Well, and that one says, no, your son is dead. And mine is alive. King doesn't know what to do. 12 years old, 15 years old. He says, here's what we're going to do. Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. Then he gave the order, cut the child in half and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive, deeply moved out of love for her son, said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Heartless. Then the king gave the ruling, give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Okay, so two mothers come in. They have babies at the same time from the same house. They come to this king. He's a young king. He asked God just before this for wisdom. And they go in an argument. He says, I don't know what to do. Get a sword, cut him in half. The woman in distress, who's really the mother, cries out in compassion, no. I'd rather my child live without me than be torn in two. And the other mother's cruel and heartless. She says, I don't care. She already killed her own child and then stole, kidnapped another child to make her own. Right? It's an amazing story. And, and he says, cut him in two. They figure it out. And everyone says, oh, wow, you're so wise. Like, this is unbelievable. Look at the wisdom. It must be from God. So then we ask, God gives all these things, right? I see God could be like, hey, I'm going to give you military mind. And then when you go fight them, I'm going to make them turn on each other. Military victory. Hey, I'm going to give you wealth. Wow, you walk outside and, and this truck rolls by and off goes this, this duffel bag full of cash. You're like, oh, God gave me that, right? God gave me land. I get an inheritance. God does a lot of different things. But does God just go, you're wise, my magic wand, wisdom. I think we lost power. Oh, we're back. Does he just go wisdom? I found a little cool record here. Wisdom, whiz, Solomon's dreams. I like records. All right, so anyhow, does he just say, suddenly you're wise? How does this occur? And what I want to talk about today, what I've been reading and studying about it, made me think, how do I apply this to what's going on in our lives and the world and our church and with us, with God? Is maybe this is a mechanism of how to become wise. And you go, what? What are you talking about? Maybe I pray for something 
And God gives me a scenario in my life about something that I prayed about. And then either I look back and I go, ah, based on my experience in life, viewing through the lens of God's word, I make a decision, good or bad. And then the next one comes along and I go, this is the same thing. And I reflect on my experience and then I look back on my prior decision with honesty and integrity. Did you handle that well? And so wisdom becomes a function of reflection based on experience. And reflection with honesty of what we did well and what we didn't do so well. So maybe the story is about a mechanism of how to become wise and not necessarily two random women at the same time in the same house had a kid at the same time. And come before this young king who just had a prayer, make me wise, God. You guys get that? Because God is omnipotent. Some of us say omnipotent. But is wisdom a IQ level? Is wisdom an IQ level? Is it? If someone's really smart and they have a high IQ, does that make them wise? No. And we all have conversations with each other in here. We know there's not a lot of crazy IQs up in here. <laughs> Except for my wife. And Chad and John Orr. But it's not a function of IQ. Is it a function of growing old? Well, it certainly could be if you've experienced things and reflected with integrity and honesty. And it's supposed to make you wise, living longer, but it's dependent upon how active you are in your life. So how do we gain wisdom? Well, we gain wisdom by experiencing things and getting involved. We get involved in each other's lives. We get involved in God's word. We get involved in praying. We don't shy away from conflict, and we don't shy away from interpersonal issues. We face our fears, we chase our challenges, we face our sin, and we call it what it is, and we're honest. And then we build experience. And then we're honest in reflection, if we did right, if we did wrong. But the question remains, if Solomon, in all his glory... He's God's man. I mean, this is the son that David bore. He's in a relationship with God. If he didn't even have enough wisdom to prevent a civil war and his children not be following God, what hope do you and I have? How do we make decisions about our lives? How do we find the right person to date, the right person to marry if that's what we want to do? How do we find the right job? How do we figure out, man, how will I accomplish this? How do I finish school? What will I do in life? How do I have a new baby? How do I raise that baby? And if Solomon, what hope do we have? And so I want to jump into how, we, how this works. Because experiences that God puts in your life is a real relationship with God. It's the function at which God works in your life and he says, listen, you need this and you want this and I'm going to give it to you. It may not be the way that you thought it would be delivered, but I'm going to walk with this through you if you obey my commands and you stay with me. 
And so we have this ongoing relationship with God if we allow it, if we're willing, in order to learn and to grow and to listen. And we listen in prayer and the Holy Spirit moves and we listen to people's advice and we get a lot of advice and we listen and we, we look back on our lives. If you want wisdom, you have to jump in and be involved in relationships. And it says, it's interesting because all the people were in awe of what he did. You know, if you remain in God and you learn from God's ways, that firm foundation again from the song, and you obey and you learn and you grow, people see the difference in you. And you make decisions in your life and they say there's something different about you. Why are you able to almost like see through people's hearts and see through people's motives and come back to the essence of what's going on? How do you not fall apart when tragedy strikes or catastrophe? And like the people that all came around Solomon and said, wow, he's so wise, they're going to come around you. And they're going to think those same things if you hang on to God's word. One of the things I have to watch out for, this is personally, and, and I think it happens when we get older, is we have to beware of starting to get experience and being involved. And then pretty soon we're telling others how it should go. Oh man, this, he's not doing it right. She's not doing it right. This is how you should do it. But we ourselves aren't pulling in the mix. We're not jumping in the mix. We have this wisdom now, and we're just going to sit back and tell you how it looked, how it's supposed to look. And I have to watch that. doesn't mean I'm all that, I'm not all that wise. I'm, I'm trying to learn. I have a lot of experiences, and I need to put them together through God's lens. But I know that I can sit back sometimes and be critical instead of pulling my own weight. And that's important. And God expects that when he gives all this stuff. Okay, so let's go to the next one. I got to try to hurry up because I'm going a little long here. He's like, yeah, you are. You guys still with me? Okay, so uh, the mothers. Let's talk about the mothers. Uh, next one, split babies. First things, cursing three. We already read that. There we go. Okay, uh, so uh, the second thing I want to talk about is the mothers in the story. Uh, maybe this vision and dream experience might, experiences might give Solomon insight of uh, what happens in his own life. We know that in a generation, his kingdom's going to be torn in two. On his right, he has a son. On his left, he has Jeroboam, one of his old officials, right? And sure enough, crap, the, the sword comes down and divides in two. But what are these mothers with these opposing outlooks? For Solomon, obviously, it's the two kings vying for custody of Israel. For us, it's the story of God and the world. It's God, the mother, and I don't want to leave out fathers. Fathers are like mothers. They describe it as a mother because a mother's love is insane, right? You'll, you'll dive through a fire to save your child. You'll go without. You'll go hungry. You'll search, right, and, and hunt down whatever you need to to feed your kid. But it's us with God and the world. Our attention is pulled and divided by cries that matter but have no eternal standing. There's no shortage or drama in the world or brilliant way to tug you in. So what do I mean? So here's the current things I looked up. Uh, 
green, saving the planet. We need to save the planet. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to do X, Y, and Z. And here's our thing. Okay. Yes. All right, cool. We're going to do that. No, we're going to go march and we're going to go do this. And my whole life is now I need to save this planet. And then I refer, and, I, and, and stay with me here. I look in 1 Corinthians 31, the second half. It says, for this world in its present form is passing away. So they go, no, nah, we need to focus on wealth, man. I need wealth. I need generational wealth to pass down. I need to supply a nice house for my, myself and money, money, money in the world. In Mark 10, 25, it says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So I pursue richness as a disciple, even though it makes it more difficult for me to stay faithful. Politics, Luke 20, 25, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. But my whole life is defined by politics. Man, when you're not around, I talk so bad about the side you're on. I'm going to tell you a million bad things about Trump, and I'm going to tell you a million bad things about Biden. And I'm only going to hang around the people that think the same way like me. Void of God and his love. Void of being indifferent because I don't care about that. I care about people's souls. Sexual rights of all kinds. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, of course, we're supposed to be good stewards of the earth, of money. We're supposed to love every kind of person, no matter their background, their race, their creed, their culture, because we're representing God. But the problem is, is we get enticed, and there's these two mothers, and there's God, and we're being ripped apart because we allow ourselves to still hang on to these things that come up from our coworkers, from the internet, from social media, from school, from whatever. And we say, yeah, but I got to take a stand on this. And you can, you can care. But that's not your mission. That's not your cause. That's not your identity. Your mission is to be a representative for God in a world that doesn't understand. Nobody should be able to love like you love. No one should be as understanding as we should be understanding. The complete opposite of what some of us do or we get pulled to do. So the good mother, God, pure, kind, concerned, heartbroken, she may lose her child. Actually, she even cries out in compassion and says, let the child live. I'd rather it live and one day possibly come back to me than die. And the cruel one, Satan, evil, liar, world, whatever you want to call it. I don't care. Rip you apart. Let's destroy you. In fact, none of us will have you. It's a crazy story. And so we become the child, pulled back and forth as the world tries to tell us what we should think, what we should care about. And we must choose. And we must apply experience, reflecting and honesty, and choose which direction we're going to go. In 2 Samuel 7, David says, hey, I'm going to build you this, this big temple. And, Solomon, and, and God says, I don't even care about the temple. I live in a tent. My people move around in a tent. I move with their people. You don't have to do this. And he says, no, I'm going to do it. He says, no, you can't do it. Your son's going to do it. Right? I want to give you a quick video real quick on what the temple looked like. Just so you see.
so I'm going to cut it short because I'm going long here on the video. We can go back to that last one. Thank you. So that's the city of David now, right in Jerusalem. Uh, so Solomon spent seven years building this temple. He spared no expense. The best cedar, juniper, all kinds of gold. He brought in bronze workers and they made a bronze sea, right? He, he, no expense. And he was on fire for God. And everything was about it. In fact, he had so many people chiseling stones out of quarries they actually had said that no chisel or hammer was heard in Jerusalem because they spent so much time in getting it out, it was perfect when they built this whole temple. And so he builds for seven years. He goes into detail, grandiose detail. I'm going to build this for God. And I'm going to give this to you, God, because I want to make it great for you. I'm invested in you. And everyone who saw his passion for God and what he built was astounding. But they usually don't put together Solomon back in the story presented with these women. See, there was a competition for his heart at the time. And it, if you want to call it a love triangle, who did he marry? He married Pharaoh's daughter. And we find out how Solomon, if you keep reading, he built God's house for seven years. And then he built his own house for 13 years. And his own house became the object of all his time and money and energy. And along the way, we find out, oh, in 1 Kings, in, in 1 Kings 7, sorry, it says 9 through 11. In 1 Kings 7 and verse 8, there's a little blurb, and we also find out they had a third project going on, a palace for Pharaoh's daughter. Then chapter 9 and 11 comes, he marries all these foreign wives, he ends up worshiping all these gods. Solomon, Solomon aligned himself with Pharaoh because he loved Pharaoh and he loved that part of him. And what I want to get at is that two things. If you're young as a Christian, you got to see if there's something you don't want to let go. Is there something that you didn't let go? Pride, being closed, not being open, relationships, romantic or not. Is there something that you desire that you just haven't given up? Like Pharaoh's daughter. And to the older ones, I want to ask, when you became a Christian, you were on fire. We believed that we could change the world in a generation. Right, Ramon? Yep. And somewhere along there, we were building God's church. We were building God's church, and we were building his house, and we were preaching Christ crucified. And we were excited to bring people to church and open the Bible. And say, look, look at all I've received a hundred times. Forgiveness, peace, ability to have relationships. I don't feel alone when I'm in a room of other people. I feel alive and I have the answers to hard questions about life. And after seven years, somewhere along here, we became like Solomon and we worried about building our own lives and less about God's house. And our time and effort went into what pleases us? What I want to do with my time. You know what's best for my kids? I'm going to build my house. And our affection for both kept growing. And we go back and forth. And I'm going to give a lot for special because I'm going to do this for God. Oh, I'm going to fast. And I'm going to fast because I'm going to sway God's heart. Like, like you can, like, it, it, it's like, uh, what do you call that word? Um, it's like bribing God. 
I'm not going to actually follow your commands, but I'm going to fast to show you how much I really love you. Right? I'm going to give money to show but I haven't eradicated the thing in my heart, in my life that keeps tearing me apart, that has a hold of me, ripping me down the center. And so we ask ourselves, when did I stop building? What investment am I going to make? You know, desires, fantasies, and sometimes emotional affairs with things like that, it doesn't have to be people, it can be things, are very real. And they become a relationship of sort, a romantic or not, and a house divided. It's like riding two horses and they eventually diverge and it splits you in half. Many of us spent years, months, days, and hours building God's house, and we did it out of affection and passion. But if you find yourself today finished with God's house and more invested and focused on your own life, something went wrong. And you got to look at experiences, you got to reflect with integrity and honesty. And cheaper imitations of life that you think you want that are trying to capture your heart, they're not real. And your faith will diminish and one day you'll wake up married to foreign gods and foreign things that you never thought was possible. And you'll tolerate foreign gods that you never thought you would. It's time to ask ourselves if I stop building God's house. Who's competing for my heart? God just wants, he doesn't want a tent, he doesn't want a temple, I mean he doesn't want a temple. He wants us to wake up every morning, look to him and say, thank you, I love you, I adore you. I want to serve you, I want to give you everything I have. For communion, we're going to watch a quick video and then take communion, and that'll be it. Thank you guys so much for listening.